We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome to the Truth Perspective on Sut Radio Network. It's January 24th, 2015. Today, we are going to be finishing up our marathon three-week discussion of Martin Luther King and uh, focusing today on the assassination. And then we'll get into a bunch of other stuff. Uh, in the studio today, we've got some regulars. We've got Carolyn. Hi. William. Hello. Ilan. Hey there. And I am your host, Harrison Cayley. Um, let's just jump right into it. So, uh, last couple of weeks, we, uh, we played some clips from Martin Luther King, some of his more famous or not so famous speeches, and discussed a bit about his life, what he did, and the things that he was really speaking out against, um, which was a lot more than he started, and ruffled a lot of feathers doing that. Um, and then, of course, he was assassinated. What a big surprise. But to give us some context, Ilan. Yes, well, uh, as we said, he was uh, ruffling a lot of feathers towards the end of his life. He was uh, connecting the economic situation among uh, millions of black and not black people in the U.S. with uh, the drive for war, particularly in Vietnam at the time. Um, and this is a, a major part of his life and work that um, has been largely uh, taken out of the history books. You read articles today, uh, nine out of ten of them uh, that discuss King on Martin Luther King's Day don't even really broach the subject. Um, and so that's a little bit of what we're going to discuss in connection to his assassination. Uh, we have a clip today. Um, it's a news uh, bite from 1997, uh, and it's basically a uh, a little bit of a face-off between Dexter King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, and a writer named David Garrow. Uh, David Garrow is a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of a book called Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership, as well as protest at Selma and the FBI and Martin Luther King Jr. So um, very interesting uh, background in, uh, in research and writing, and especially interesting considering uh, some of the things that he says in, in the clip we're about to hear. And just to set it up a little further, um, it was uh, just prior to this interview that Dexter King went to meet with uh, James Earl Ray in prison uh, to talk to him. And who, who is James Earl Ray? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he is the, uh, or was the alleged uh, assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Which he always denied. Yes. Well, kind of. But we'll get into that. Yes. 
So with that, uh, let's hear the interview, and uh, we'll take it from there. All right. Dexter King's 1997 meeting with a man imprisoned for killing his father was a breakthrough in James Earl Ray's long fight to be heard. But many saw it as a bizarre, disturbing footnote to a great tragedy. One week after the meeting, on the eve of the 29th anniversary of the assassination, today's Matt Lauer spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning King biographer David Garrow. You said that the scene of James Earl Ray and Dexter King shaking hands was, quote, sad and surreal. Why? Yes, Matt. I think it's very sad that the King family and the King children are so uninformed of the history that they could be open to believing that Mr. Ray was not involved in Dr. King's assassination. Mr. Ray was someone of long-standing racist, segregationist affiliations, and as the House Assassinations Committee very correctly concluded 19 years ago, Mr. Ray was probably the trigger man for a wider segregationist conspiracy to kill Dr. King. But Dexter King and his family members are not the only people who've been asking questions for the last 29 years. If there are some doubts, why is it a betrayal to Dr. King's legacy to meet James Earl Ray face to face and at least try and get some answers to those questions? Unfortunately, Matt, we can find people who deny that slavery was bad for Afro-Americans. People will deny that the Holocaust happened in Europe. Unfortunately, people just don't have a good enough historical recollection of how many times, how thoroughly this has been investigated. Mr. Ray testified for three days on live national television in 1978, and I think it's fair to say made a laughing stock of himself. Mr. Garrow, Mr. Ray could tell the truth if he chose to. All right, hang on for one second because joining us now is Dexter King. Dexter, good morning to you. Good morning. Mr. Garrow seems to think that you and your family members are being duped by James Earl Ray and his attorneys. What's your reaction? Well, I am very disturbed by his comments that anyone in this day and age of victims' rights would suggest uh, that it is wrong for a family to in question uh, who killed their loved one. The fact of the matter is, uh, I guess I'm, I'm really not surprised because Mr. Garrow, uh, for whatever reason, uh, is doing his job. And, and frankly, he is an agent for those forces of suppression who do not want this truth to come forward. Unfortunately, the King family has not looked at the record that the House Assassinations Committee compiled 19 years ago. Uh, there's really no dispute among people that know this history well about Mr. Ray's guilt. I, I the real questions that we should be pursuing and that Mr. King should be putting to Mr. Ray are who encouraged and who funded Mr. Ray to kill Martin Luther King Jr. That should be our Dexter? focus. I think what is really appalling here is that Mr. Garrow has uh, built a platform on exploiting my father's legacy. If it were not for my family, Mr. Garrow would not have gained access to my father's papers and many other things that have given him a platform to speak out. And to now come back and say that we're misinformed is totally appalling. What we have here and what people need to remember is that Mr. Ray, like other segregationist terrorists from the 1960s, did a tremendous amount of harm to the black freedom struggle. And for Mr. King to be misled into believing in mafia conspiracies uh, is 
so unfortunately ignorant of the real history. Dexter, I, I met Mr. Ray. He is not a segregationist. I've met segregationists. This man was not born in the South as the media portrayed at the time. The fact of the matter is he was born in Illinois. I met his family. They are not people who strike me as racist. The fact of the matter is this man was set up. And we need to deal with this so that we can move on. The American public deserves the right to know. Certainly the family of the victim deserves the right to know what happened to their loved one. We need to stop living in denial in this country. Dexter. So once and for all, face this injustice. The Reverend Jesse Jackson agrees somewhat Mr. Get with Mr. Garrow in saying that James Earl Ray does not deserve a trial until he begins to tell the truth, among other things, saying that Raul never existed. Would you at least agree with that, that he does need to tell a little bit more of the truth before a trial is warranted? Well, first of all, Raul has been located. As I said, there are so many people who are talking about this case as if they're informed. They are the ones that are uninformed. They do not have the up-to-date latest information. As with that other great tragedy of the 60s, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the death of Martin Luther King is a wound that will not heal. For some, there will always be a search for the latest information, the clues to a conspiracy, the evidence of some rationale to an otherwise senseless tragedy. Did James Earl Ray kill Martin Luther King? Thirty years after the assassination, the third official investigation into the killing found that Ray did commit the murder and that he acted alone. What matters most, of course, is that King is gone. That's time and again for now. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jane Pauley, and we're history. And thank you, Jane Pauley, for uh, concluding uh, that new segment with uh, some wonderfully predictable spin uh, that would completely undercut anything that Dexter King was uh, trying to say. Um, you know, what's interesting about King's meeting with uh, James Earl Ray is that it was really part of a much larger strategy on the part of the King family to uh, bring the truth to light. And uh, just some of the facts that they were aware of that uh, David Garrow, who's probably a paid agent of COINTELPRO, I mean... Well, what a scum. Oh, really? Listening to me, it's just like you you were just in it for the money and probably more. And he got a Pulitzer Prize uh. from, from the bios that he had written about King. Um, so we have, just to name a few, uh, some very interesting facts around the actual assassination. Uh, the 111th Military Intelligence Group were at the location of the assassination at the time. Uh, Special Forces Group had an Ant-Man sniper team at the assassination location at the time. Uh, the usual Memphis Police Special Bodyguards were advised they weren't needed on the day of the assassination. So there are a number of um, of uh, black police officers uh, in the area who whose job, you know, under usual circumstances would have been to police the area, who were called off duty that day. Um, military intelligence set up photographers on the roof of a fire station with a clear view to Dr. King's balcony where he was shot. Uh, the room uh, that Dr. King was supposed to be in at the motel he was staying at was changed from a secure first floor room to an exposed balcony room. And and no one knows 
who actually called the hotel to change that reservation. Um, the crime scene was sanitized. Uh, the the bushes um, across the way, just uh, adjacent to the hotel, uh, were cut down the night after the assassination. The rifle James Earl Ray delivered was not matched to the bullet <laughs> that killed Dr. King and was not cited to accurately shoot. Um, at one point in the interview, we heard of Raul. Um, if, if any of you have watched the incredible, indispensable evidence of revision, uh, you'll know that Raul is the name of James Earl Ray's handler, who he was probably engaged in petty crimes with and had a history with. Interestingly, Raul has ties to Jack Ruby. Yes, Jack Ruby of uh, the JFK assassination. I was uh, just going to say there's a remarkable pattern here that we have seen before. <laughs> it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. So flash forward a couple of years to 1999, and uh, the King family uh, manages to um, have a... Uh, a civil suit, um, and the civil suit was designed to uh, to clear James Earl Ray of the assassination, and uh, to also suggest that there were members of the local state police at the time and the government that were in fact involved in the assassination, and they won. Uh, Twelve jurists deliberated for one hour after 30 days of testimony and decided correctly, given all the evidence, that uh, fact elements of our government that were responsible for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, there were a couple of um, things that were said at the trial verdict in December of 1999 um, one of them was by William Pepper, who had represented the family in the law case. And what he said was this. He said, ladies and gentlemen, this great republic has throughout its history has been afraid to face the issues that Martin Luther King tried to confront at the end of his life. Dexter King said, quite frankly, that Martin King opposed the war in Vietnam and sought to bring the poor to Washington to rally for their cause in the halls of Congress. They took up tents in the shadow of the Washington Memorial to remind the lawmakers that forces of power in this land do exist, and they have rights which were being denied to them. Because he took on those forces, powerful economic forces that dominated politics in this land, they killed him. He was killed because he could not be stopped. He was killed because they feared that half a million people would rise in revolution in the capital of this country and do what Mr. Jefferson said needed to be done every 20 years to cleanse this land. This land has not been cleansed. This nation has not faced the problems that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. died trying to face and confront. They still exist today, the forces of evil, the powerful economic forces that dominate the government of this land and make money on war and deprive the poor of what is their right, their birthright. They still abound and they rule. The jury heard the background of Dr. Dr. King's crust, 
they understood, finally, the reason why he was stained. He was not a civil rights leader when he was stained. He was an international figure of great stature. He had a moral banner that he was waving, and it was heard and seen all over the land. Here and in Europe, he had that kind of compelling presence. He was a danger and a threat to the status quo. So he was eliminated. And that's why it's one of the major reasons why we don't know. Most people don't know of this particular law case and uh, and and what it meant. I think if they did, uh, we would. <laughs> well, I, we could speculate. I don't. Know, I don't know how people would react. Probably with, um, great anger and and a renewed uh, energy in taking up what King was trying to do. Well, a little bit about James Earl Ray. Um, at the original, when he was caught originally, he entered a plea bargain. So he actually pled guilty originally. But the reason he did so was because his lawyers and the the people involved in the case told him that if he didn't, he'd he'd be getting the death penalty, and there was a chance that his father and brother, I think, would be would be implicated as well and investigated and possibly charged. Mm-hmm. So he took the plea bargain, and then found out that. Um, that he was the only person um, being charged, and that he wouldn't actually be face be have a real trial, and so he immediately recanted his his plea bargain, but they wouldn't let him. Mm-hmm. So he basically got stuck with it, and ever since then he's been adamant that um, that he's not guilty. No, he didn't exactly have a free choice there, did he? No, no, not at all. The thing that struck me about Jane Pauley asserting that the third House committee has found that James Earl Ray committees are struck specifically to bury the truth. We've seen that over and over with the Warren Commission and then with King and with 9-11. So anytime you hear a committee's findings, a government committee, you can pretty well conclude that there's nothing remotely resembling the truth there. They might have marshaled the facts, but have you know reassembled them in such a way that it has you know no application to what actually happened. So this blithe news head saying, oh, yes, the third committee was just like, oh, please. <laughs> and then two years later, thankfully, you know, we had this civil trial. But again, nobody's heard about yeah, it. And no one's heard about it. I don't think it was. I remember reading that I don't think any newspapers or in, or national media covered it. There was a total news blackout mm-hmm. after the announcement. And so, yeah, I was shocked when I heard about it. I had no idea about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the other thing, too, just going back to Gower. Oh, God. What a, Garrow. Garrow. What a slimy person. Just questioning why they would ever want to go see Ray. Well, even, even if there was not any of this behind it, these are staunch Baptist Christians. And the first, you know, one of the first Christian edicts is to... You know, if you forgive your enemies, and the only way you can forgive your—I mean, I don't think he went there for forgiveness. He went there for for information, but to to even disparage that, mm-hmm. and then claim that that the principal family involved in this tragedy was misinformed was it just just ah, uh, he just just coming out of his mouth, and he's, it's either he has absolutely no idea what he's saying, or just it was just cruel. Yeah, I mean, uh, he he could have probably said 
those same things, even if he truly believed them and wasn't the paid agent, he, he probably could have afforded to be a lot more sensitive to the fact of who he was talking to. Jesus, I know. It was awful. Awful, awful. There was also, um, at that press conference of the uh, trial verdict, something that Coretta Scott King had, had said. Um, and she also minces no words. She spares no sentiment uh, when she uh, when she read her speech. Did, did you want to read that, Carolyn? Or, sure. Uh, sure, I can do that. She was a wonderfully eloquent woman on her own. I mean, Martin certainly had his match in her. So these are the words of Coretta Scott King. There is abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband, Martin Luther King Jr. And the civil court's unanimous verdict has validated our belief. I wholeheartedly applaud the verdict of the jury, and I feel that justice has been well served in their deliberations. This verdict is not only a great victory for my family, but also a great victory for America. It is a great victory for truth itself. It is important to know that this was a swift verdict delivered in a, after about an hour of jury deliberation. The jury was clearly convinced by the extensive evidence that was presented during the trial that, in addition, in addition to Mr. Jowers, the conspiracy of the mafia, local, state, and federal government agencies were deeply involved in the assassination of my husband. The jury also affirmed overwhelming evidence that identified someone else, not James Earl Ray, as the shooter, and that Mr. Ray was set up to take the blame. I want to make it clear that my family has no interest in retribution. Instead, our sole concern has been that the full truth of the assassination has been revealed and adjudicated in a court of law. But if no one hears about it, it is somewhat of a tainted victory. Yeah, it's like we were talking about last week when we were discussing propaganda techniques and the way they work. And by by not making information like this available, sure, some people will manage to find it, but it'll it will it'll never be enough to make a difference. So by clamping down on certain stories and making sure they don't get any airtime, it just ensures that the people as a majority, don't know it, don't, aren't aware of it. And then you can, with that, you can get away with anything. You just carry on with, them, yeah. with the view you've already fed them. Yeah. And we see it's it's the same thing with JF, the JFK assassination, RFK, all, the, all these big events. They have so many things in common. And even just the, the, the idea that James Earl Ray was a patsy, well, that, we've seen that that is standard operating procedure and it has been for generations now. Well, probably even longer than that, but especially in these past few years with all these terror attacks alleged going on where you get you have the shooter and he's almost he he or they are almost immediately identified and then they're killed. They've learned their lessons since since, you know, at the MLK, JFK, RFK assassinations. I mean, you've got to you can't let these guys who are innocent stick around. So they were a bit late with Lee Harvey Oswald. They really should have, if they wanted to get their story straight, they should have taken care of that a bit earlier. But then Sirhan Sirhan, I mean, um, James Earl Ray, they these guys, well, I guess that even shows that if you don't, even if you don't kill your patsy, you can still get away with it. Mm-hmm. But now they're just a lot more efficient. They take out the patsy within a couple of days, 
Mm-hmm. And then there's no trial, no real investigation. It makes it a lot easier to control uh, the the information in the public and any any trial or court case that ends up coming up. I mean, they just they can say whatever they want. Well, you have an inquiry. Yeah. And the thing too is they they've also actually it's it's kind of a nod to how you know dumbed down we've become that uh, it's only been a feature of the latest one, starting with 9-11, where you conveniently leave a piece of identifying information. I mean, mm-hmm. before, you actually had to kind of go through the motions of having a, poli- you know, a police investigation and picking up clues and finally getting your guy. But no, hey, now, here's here's his passport. Here's his driver's license. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got him. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to sweat anymore. <laughs> it's the level of, Criticism or discourse in the media is just astounding when you look at this in any if you if you talk to actual police officers or detectives, I mean you can have planted fingerprints, you can have planted evidence. these are all things that are a real investigator has to consider and look at when dealing with something like this but in a in a trial by media, the information is just there, and there's no questioning it mm-hmm. you're you're branded as a conspiracy theorist or or some other kind of lunatic for even questioning the idea that, oh, maybe we should look into this a bit closer. Maybe it's not what we actually think it is. But no, everyone, each piece of inf- of so-called evidence that makes it into the media is designed just to confirm the idea that this guy is guilty and this is exactly the way it went down. And you have to look to the alternative media, so-called, in order to get to see anyone asking the question, oh, well, you know, could this identification have been planted there? It seems awfully convenient. I mean, that should be the first question a real investigator would ask, but in the media? No, mm-hmm. I guess not. Well, you know, I remember several years ago there was a, um, this idea, you can't trust the Internet. <laughs> and and that's certainly true to some degree. You have to be discriminating. But, um, you know, it's just like the, uh, the, the idea of conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote, uh, once you put this idea out in the minds of people who um, who might have questions that you can't trust the internet, uh, all all of those questions get immediately, uh, you know, wh- where you would be finding alternative information, real good information that you're not getting in the major media. It's no longer a possibility for them if they've they've accept that. Well, that's that's the next slur after. Oh, you're a conspiracy therapist. Is therapist? <laughs> conspiracy therapist. That's, that's ah. what we are. <laughs> <laughs> we're conspiracy therapists here. You know, we're going to cure you of all those problems. Uh, if you're a theorist, the very next insult is, "Oh, you read that on the internet, didn't you?" <laughs> and the, oh, that bugs me so much when you hear someone say that, and it comes up. I find it comes up most often, and we we discussed it around here yesterday. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about medical things. Like if you're talking about vaccines or diet or anything like that. Oh, did you read that on the internet? <laughs> well, that talk about a total non sequitur. I mean, you could say anything, and and you could respond. Oh, did you read that on the internet? Because you can read anything on the internet. That's you know that true. you can you can read about the Big Bang theory and how vaccinations are good and all this stuff. And I, you know, so oh, what did you guys read that on the internet? <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. well, and and then the the thing is, is that all this stuff, like usually the things. I'd say more often than not, even if all the things that you say that would garner that would get that response, it's not just the internet. I mean, if you look at 
the people saying it, there are people saying it who have the credentials of people who would say things otherwise. They're published in mainstream journals that you can get on PubMed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on the Internet, but it's a published journal. That's you can right. find it in books published by, you know, so-called respectable um, university presses. So it's it's just a way of saying something to get so that the person saying it doesn't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. They can They have a really easy, pat way of ignoring what that person is saying for no good reason, but it sounds like a good reason because they've heard other people say it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, it doesn't not to say that you can't, don't have to think. I mean, there's there's a tiny bit of validity in that, but the Internet, definitely when there is an event, the first couple hours you tend to get a really good raw data dump. Some of it is junk, some of it's good, but you get it you get your hands on it before the media has a chance to spin it. So that's been one of the, the values of the internet while we still have it. Mm-hmm. Well speaking of media spin, I want to move on to something else unless we have anything else to say about Martin Luther King. Okay, so moving on. Media well, um there first of all, there's been a lot of things happening in Ukraine this past week or so. Um, I think we might have touched on it last week, or I know that the behind the headlines guys, Joe and Neil, touched on on a bit of it last week. But things are continuing. Um, the, the forces of Novorossiya um, in Donetsk and Lugansk have retaken the Donetsk airport. Now we've talked about talked about this a few times. Now this has been a, a contested area for pretty much the entire war so far with some Ukrainian troops and mercenaries holed up there, um, surrounded basically, and not leaving. So several times Donetsk, the, the Donetsk authorities offered to open a humanitarian corridor to let these guys leave. Um, that was refused several times. They, um, they um, had a troop rotation um, in, I believe it was about a month ago, so that it was overseen by the OSCE. So they let out, you know, the injured and tired and starving guys from the airport and replaced them with fresh troops. And it's just been a constant source of of conflict there with uh, fighting pretty much every day. And just a week or so ago, the the Donetsk militias there uh, retook the the entire airport. So it was totally um, they took prisoners of war and basically killed anyone that was fighting there and they totally regained control of the airport. Now, these battles of this sort where the the Donetsk guys have some kind of victory at the airport is always portrayed in the Ukrainian media and the West as something that it was not. So the, the Ukrainians are always in control of more than they actually are. They don't lose very many guys. There's very few killed in action or wounded and um, basically, the Kiev army is just this is this great fighting force. And so, so about a week ago, they the, the Ukrainians lose control of the airport. And this is and then in a, in response, because the Ukrainians really want wanted to keep control of this airport for whatever reason, if it was just a a kind of um, public image kind of thing that we control this important area or who knows what. There, there was, uh, it was built as a military airport. Yeah. There was a lot of underground construction in there, and that's what made it so hard to get get these folks out of it. So mm-hmm. as, a, as a base of operation for which they were shelling all of the nearby villages, mm-hmm. and I was watching one of the videos. If you want 
good videos. You find the Ukraine videos and hopefully they have subtitles, but one of the colonels of the New Russia Army remarked that somehow the shelling was much lighter on the actual army and that the uh, mm-hmm. the villages around were taking a lot more damage and death. Yeah, so from the from the airport and the and the vicinity of the airport, they were using those locations to basically bomb civilian areas. But um in response, the Ukrainians launched this pretty big offensive in part to retake the airport, but also just to bomb various civil more civilian areas. And this, this, so that for the past week, there's been fighting along the, the entire front um, between the Ukrainians and the militias, um, bombing of, of, the, of civilian areas like in, in Gorlovka. Um, they, were, they experienced 14 hours straight of shelling um, one of those days. And then, so what do the Ukrainians do? So in the media, they're saying, oh, we've still got control of the airport when they don't. And then, so this is the story, These this group of... Um, I don't know, eight to twelve guys, maybe up to sixteen. Get sent. Um, do you have the? You want to read the transcript? Then? Yeah, there actually, there's a wonderful article on signs, uh, basically saying that New Varosia is winning, um, and some some pretty awful things came out of it. There's three different videos, so I've transcribed a little bit of two different ones. Uh, but the first video you'll see on that. Uh, on that video is an actual, I mean, it actually looks like raw footage of grabbing these eight guys. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of yelling and screaming and a lot of swearing, which gets beeped out. So we don't know how to swear in Ukrainian at this point. No, it's in, in Russian. Russian. Yeah. In Russian. So, uh, but one of the big prizes was this Colonel Oleg Mikats. And he was very high up in the command and they had grabbed him. And when they realized who they had, they got you know real excited. And they basically, you know, were interrogating him standing right there with his hands zip tied behind his behind his thing. And uh, it starts out with, you know, the the news guy kind of doing the intro and saying, OK, here's these guys. And this the uh, leader of the Nuvorosia group that got them was kind of screaming at them for a few minutes. And then you hear him saying to evacuate the airport. So that's why they were sent. That's why they were sent. Their their code word for injured is the three hundreds. So then GV, I think it was the guy who was talking to him, said, "So you were told the airport is under your control, right?" And Mercat nods. And when you entered, it turned out who turned out to be here: the Army of the Donetsk Republic. And he's just looking crushed. This guy, and GV says, "You've been sent to the slaughter. You've been destroyed, and under your." Under your distraction, that was the translation, they've attempted to send their tanks, the ones we've burnt just now. So this very, very high-ranking colonel, I believe he was, yeah. had been lied to. They were told they were just going to evacuate the injuries and get them out of there, and that was all it was going to be. And when they got there, in an interview with a second soldier, it says, uh, we moved out from Vodianova. We had to take our men out from the airport, and that's it, simply to take them out, and that's it. And when they got there, they were just met with withering fire. There were no injured. They were sent as a, a decoy, unknowingly, for this other for this other uh, operation that they had going. Or, it, who knows, it could be that the, the Ukrainian commanders and generals were just that stupid that they believe their own propaganda, but it could have been a distraction like like Givy had mentioned. Mm-hmm. But so this Oleg Mikats guy, 
he, he there was some well it's not funny but there was a, a news clip of him back last year sometime mm-hmm. talking to a journalist that was found in Pesky who which is a, a a small town near the airport so this is where a lot of the shelling was coming from and so Mikat saw this guy there and threatened to kill personally kill any journalist he found in the city and this guy was also the the guy that was at the the troop rotation in December that was organized by the or overseen by the OSCE and you can see him in a video in the background so one of the one of the Donetsk guys Motorola call sign was was there and shook hands with the with the battalion commander and Oleg Mikats is is in the back watching with just this like grumpy look on his face like he is not enjoying being there or seeing his his subordinate uh, the, the battalion commander shake hands with this um, bandit, as they call Motorola. And so, I don't know, I I had a smile on my face when I saw that he, he was caught. That video was very odd, too. It, it just had these echoes of the that Christmas truce in 1914, mm-hmm. these two soldiers, I mean, with Kat just kind of bowering in the background, but they were just kind of like, yeah, this this sucks, and we don't want to do it, but we've got our orders. And yeah, I understand, and you know, this is we just want to we just want to be peaceful with our family, but we've got a job to do. And everybody's like, it was it was bizarre. It was like everybody was like, yeah, on every all sides, this really sucks. We want to go back to our families, but what choice do we have? It mm-hmm. was strange, well, very strange. And the 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 difference in mindsets between the two sides is striking. Um, I'd really recommend that listeners check out the the YouTube channels South Front and Kazura, K A Z Z U R A, and those those guys translate a lot of the the news coming out of there and just footage from the streets and interviews with with the militiamen and with the prime minister even of Donetsk, mm-hmm. and so after all these POWs were taken, um, Zakharchenko, who's the prime minister. Very, I mean, he he seems like a really decent guy. He he said that any of the the POWs that were found would be released immediately to the families. The families had to come pick them up, though, and they wouldn't wait for a prisoner exchange because that's how they've been dealing with most of the POWs. Is they have prisoner exchanges with the for their guys that were captured and civilians that were arrested for no reason um, by the Kiev forces. And so you can you can watch a video. There's a, a Ukrainian mother that came to um, I believe it was to to pick up her son. And so Zakharchenko kind of paraded her around the city and showed what her son and the people and the Kiev forces are doing. Here are all the buildings that have been bombed by by your people. Here are the dead. Here are the coffins. And what did we ever do to you? You guys are coming here. We never came to you. And just to see the the there's a level of humanity there that is totally lacking in the the Ukrainian world or the Ukrainian perspective on this war that's going on. Mm-hmm. If you and and it's a perspective that you won't get on the in the Western media, and that is that Kiev, the guys that the West is supporting, are the ones going into these self-declared independent republics and bombing civilian residential areas killing people just a few days there was another attack on a bus 
that was shelled, 15 people dead. And it's, I, well, I just rec recommend watching the videos if you still aren't aware of what's going on and, you know, if you think you have the guys in this. Well, what's amazing is how these people, despite all of their suffering, are still keeping their humanity alive. Like, mm -hmm. I saw another video, it's in the same article of Zarachenko doing a press conference, and he pulls up three of the eight of the captured soldiers and just kind of interviews them. And he is, he's so tired. Oh my goodness, this man is so tired. But he treats them with such respect. I mean, these were kids. They were like 21 and 23. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he basically says, you, you've seen what's happened. You've seen what's going on. And they're the, those three soldiers, these three Ukrainian soldiers, are just devastated. You can see it in their faces. But he did not crush them. He could have crushed them publicly. And he said, look, you know, <clears throat> I know that you were sent under false pretenses. I, you believe that you were doing a job. You behaved as good soldiers. I I have respect for that. And And I just... Uh, an amazing thing to watch, just an amazing thing that that he could still see the humanity of each of these kids mm -hmm. who were sent out in a situation they had no idea. They they one guy told that he had been trained for a month. He had been at the front exactly 14 hours from the time he got there till the time he was captured. 14 hours, and he had survived, and like nine of his group had died. Mm -hmm. Unreal. Well, at the at the airport after the they gained control of it, they found numerous American-made weapons, um, and each of the each of the guys that was there, the Ukrainian guys, had a little solar-powered device with readings from uh, an American uh, an American Baptist preacher translated into uh, well, it was in English and Russian. It wasn't in Ukrainian for some reason, but. The, so each of these guys was given this Christian um, little propaganda device, telling, basically telling them that it, it was you're doing the right thing and it's okay to die. <laughs> and among the bodies, apparently, they said that. Now I couldn't find a time period, but they they recovered 600 bodies at the airport from the Ukrainian side. I'm not sure if this is just from recent fighting or if that was cumulative over the entire um, all the battles that have taken place there. But they said they found guys in NATO uniforms, um, in addition to other foreign mercenaries. So you know, there's oh, and yeah, and yet Russia is is condemned for sending help. But the NATO will contract foreign mercenaries. Apparently, uh, the latest incarnation of Blackwater, which is Academy with an I, sent 400 mercs in May. So, and of course, as this is happening. Okay, a little timeline. So it, I think it was about a day before the, the newly launched offensive, um, the Ukrainian government had basically said that the Minsk protocols were kaput. They weren't going to deal with that anymore. And so then they launched this offensive, totally, you know, get their butts kicked. There are, well, it's it's hard to know the exact figures, but it's really looking like, except for civilian deaths, very few uh, militia deaths, but just staggering numbers of Ukrainian dead and injured, mm -hmm. and tanks lost and and weapons 
it's just kind of a, a route at this point. But um, so Poroshenko then says that, oh, my God, Russia's invaded again. 9,000 Russian troops are helping the, the militias to, to fight this war, which is totally nonsense. Um, and even the but what's curious about that is that this time the U.S. State Department refused to confirm these. Um, you know, usually they'll they'll get right behind this stuff and say, "Oh yeah, no, we know it's true, even if we can't share the evidence." But no, they they even said that we you know we can't confirm that because it's totally BS. I mean, and maybe after a dozen times of saying you know Russia invaded, uh, people are starting to catch on that Russia has not invaded, mm-hmm. and it probably hasn't happened this time. Well, the OSCE even confirmed that there were no Russian troops. Mm-hmm. Well, the. Poroshenko's in a really behind a rock and a hard place. I mean, he can't promise uh, EU. I mean, there's no way Ukraine's ever going to go into the EU. They are such a basket case that the EU could never afford to help the country get the kind of help it needs. And yet he knows that he could get a substantial amount of help from Russia. But if he goes in that direction, he's got the insane right sector Azov battalion ready to to lynch him if he does. So Mm -hmm. he is really... Screwed. He also has um, Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk uh, plotting against him mm-hmm. and and planning a kind of um, new Maidan or or so the stories say. Oh yeah. Uh, to coincide with the one year anniversary of the uh, prior Maidan. Mm-hmm. So he's got uh, pressure from all these literally Nazi battalions who are ready to to go in there and murder uh, mm-hmm. the subhuman uh, Novo Russians. Uh, he's got the U.S. and NATO uh, pressing against him to, you know, allow him to or make him unleash the dogs mm-hmm. further. Uh, he's got, uh, not that I feel any sympathy for Poroshenko <laughs> whatsoever. It's just, what, what is he going to do? A planned coup, yeah. Uh, he also has uh, monetary, you know, interests of his own, since the guy's an oligarch and he is, after all, the chocolate king mm-hmm. uh, with Russia, uh, and and maybe maybe an ounce of common sense uh, telling him that Ukraine really can't survive without Russia's support mm-hmm. in a number of ways. Oh, here's some more. I read it on the internet. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. Uh, um, these were these were interesting little tidbits, but they didn't have enough. Uh, legitimacy to actually put them on signs, but there was a a tweet about uh, what basically amounts to forced conscription in Ukraine now, and you're being served with papers, and they literally ambush you. You'll be served with papers calling you up, anybody between 20 and 60. They'll serve you at work. One guy said that he uh, got served papers as he was picking up his kid in daycare, and they're not in for it. They're not going for it. He says the the lines outside of doctors' offices and clinics for people trying to get medical deferments are huge. People are sneaking away any which way they can. Men are going to relatives in distant cities. Some people are trying to get to Russia. Uh, I mean, there is no appetite within the populace for this war at all. And so trying to fulfill the troop requirements they're going to need to make up for what they've lost and what they're going to need to to actually do something serious in Donbass is not happening. Russia is concerned because of these, you know, on the one hand, 
been been so welcoming to refugees, amazingly welcoming, even to the point of uh, guaranteeing if you were getting a pension in Ukraine, you would still get your pension. Like if you're retired, if you're a little granny who's living on whatever month, you would still get it. But the concern is that with this huge influx of these these mostly men, although I don't know if women are being called up or not, I wouldn't doubt it after a while, um, that there will be subversive elements slipping into Russia. And, you know, while they're safe from from military duty, they could then begin starting their subversive activities there. So there's a huge amount of concern on the Russian side. Well, one of the, one of the downsides of conscription, well, and a lot of these guys that were captured, um, were this was their first engagement. I mean, they were uh, trained in, like, September, and this is the first military engagement, their first operation, and they get captured or killed. And they're obviously poorly trained, young, new. And so, I mean, how many people, how many fresh recruits are they planning in the next few months? Something like... 200,000. Something like that. I mean, it's just, they're just going to be cannon fodder. But one of the one of the results of this is somewhat interesting. Um, Russia isn't the only country that Kiev has debts to and isn't paying. Um, China, they owe China about $3 billion for grain purchased a couple years ago. So China put out $3 billion for, for grain and some other stuff. And Kiev has paid about $150 million of this. And that barely covers the interest. Mm-hmm. So they owe $3 billion worth of grain to China. How is Ukraine the breadbasket of the world having to import grain? How did that happen? Well, China actually had a, a lot of deals with Ukraine before the coup. Um, they had a kind of a, a cozy business relationship, but that totally got turned upside down afterwards. And so China can call in this debt and basically bankrupt the government or the country. Um, but... The the thing is is that the people that will are growing this grain and basically the people that make Ukraine its money are the ones that are being put into military service and being killed. So they they need to win this war because they've got the IMF and and the US telling them they have to. And so I think poor so Poroshenko is kinda of, he's he's totally powerless over this situation. He has to continue the war which is totally unsuccessful and he won't be able to do. And if he isn't successful, then he's got, you know, Turchinov and Yatsenyuk and uh, Kolomoisky um, just waiting to to come out and take his place. So it's just a it's it's just a mess, a total mess of a situation. And um, I, I don't know. Um, well, the, one of the funny things about the Minsk protocols is that you know, like I mentioned the day before. This this attack, they were saying no Minsk protocols, and then they started losing, and they lost the airport, and then all of a sudden, Poroshenko was like, "Oh, we need to have some more Minsk talks." Like, mm-hmm. I I just thought that was funny, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about Ukraine. Yeah, um, fighting's still going, and so we'll have more news yeah, as it happens. Um, <clears throat> the assessments I've been reading is that this uh, this got another year to go, barring some black swan event mm-hmm. it may just collapse in a day or it may drag on for another year which would just be tragic well moving over do you want to give us our 
economics update for the week, William. All right. Yeah, speaking of uh, Ukraine going into a collapse, uh, that could head off or or start uh, another war, which is kind of uh, what happens when you have currency wars, which is what's going on right now. Some interesting news out of uh, Europe was uh, right before the EU decided to do a whole bunch of quantitative easing, the Swiss franc decided it didn't want to be pegged to the euro anymore. And that sure caused a lot of eyebrows to be raised and a lot of banks are scrambling. Um, A lot of hedge funds died. Let's see. Let me uh, talk a little bit about what a currency peg is, or another word for it is a fixed exchange rate system. And that's usually when a currency's value is fixed to another currency or a basket of currencies or to uh, the weight of gold. And it's usually fixed at a predetermined value to keep keep those values stabilized, which helps make trade and investments more predictable, and it's pretty useful for the smaller economies. Now, most of the fixed exchange rates are are gone except for the European exchange rate mechanism, and that's, uh, that's temporarily using the euro to establish a conversion rate, and they usually allow a plus or minus 15% fluctuation amongst the different uh, um, currencies. Um, the gold exchange rate, that one prevailed from 1870 to 1914. Of course, right after that, we had World War One. Then after World War II, another one was tried, and that was the Bretton Woods, uh, which replaced the, the gold and used uh, U.S. dollars. And, of course, the birth of the IMF. And that was set up as an exchange, but that fell apart in the early 70s when good old Nixon decided to not have dollars backed by any kind of gold. So the argument of using gold is that it ties the world price levels to the world supply of gold, and thus that prevents inflation, unless, of course, there's a major gold discovery. So what it means is there's there's a known amount of gold, and you can only have so much currency for that known amount of gold. Right. Okay. So that keeps <clears throat> supposedly keeps everything pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And so... I was just uh, looking at some of the uh, different currencies and their rates uh, as compared to gold. And uh, as as we know, uh, gold is topping 1300 U.S. dollars lately. For the past four months, it's been uh, on the rise. Okay. Can I ask, just interject one thing? Because this is something I'm still trying to get my head around. So the amount of – if you've got yourself tied to gold, that means that you can, you declare that you have – five pounds of gold, and you only have so much currency that you value to gold in that you put into circulation. Is it against all gold or a country's gold? It's uh, against uh, your the gold that you – that's why banks have to keep a gold reserve to back up the gold, the currency that they're printing. Okay. And they usually go by ounces. Okay. <clears throat> so um, – I was just looking at the gold prices and uh, the euro to gold. It's uh, last four months has gone up 24 uh, percent, as well as a Canadian uh, dollar versus the gold, and uh, so is the Australian dollar. Um, the Swiss franc, as well as the uh, U.S. dollar and the Chinese yuan, and let's see the Japanese yen. Indian rupee, they're all about 13 to 15% uh, climbs for okay. the past four months. 
So does that mean they print, they've printed more money to match the amount of gold they have? Right. That's, okay. This is part of the currency arm. Plus, uh, the euro is is got their mm-hmm. own uh, pegged currency. Mm-hmm. But the Swiss franc was up 14% as well until they decided to remove the peg to the euro. Now, all of a sudden, they're back even to where they were four months ago. Okay. So the Swiss franc really went up in in, uh, in value. Now, it's interesting that the U.S. dollar is seems to be on the rise. It has been for the last couple of months, but yet gold is still going up versus the dollar. So that that's kind of interesting. What, why? That sounds strange. It does sound strange because usually uh, when the currency devalues, uh, the gold goes up. So, so if... if uh... But there's no transparency in these gold markets, so it's hard to determine just what exactly is going on there. So the only other mechanism would be more people want dollars for for the dollar to go up? For the dollar to go up? Well, you've got that. Um, more and more countries are not using the U.S. dollar anymore. Mm. So, um, And plus there's a very high demand for gold lately, as mm-hmm. you notice. So Russia, China... India are accumulating a lot of gold, uh, almost all of what the gr- what the world can produce, and you have some European countries now repatriating their gold. Uh, Germany was successful in repatriating even more, a little bit ahead of their delayed schedule that they had previously, which was kind of a surprise. So it just kind of makes you wonder what's going on in the background in the in the in the world as far as a. Uh, Possibly some major reset occurring. Um, if they have that, then you know the gold has to be spread out amongst all the nations before something can be done. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of chaos. Um, and in fact, uh, Jean Claude Trichet mentioned back in uh, November that the the global economy and the global finance is at a turning point in a way. New rules have been discussed with all the advanced and emerging economies, including the most important, China. Makes one wonder if U.S. and China are somehow suppressing the price of gold to allow China to amass gold, but that doesn't explain what's going on with Russia, where we see their ruble, of course, really devalue quite a bit, and, and gold uh, to ruble has went up 63% in the last four months, which is quite astounding. So, what does uh, the World Economic Forum and Davos think about all this kind of stuff? Well, for the last uh, six, seven years, their top five global risk in terms of likelihood of it happening, their, their top one has been asset price collapses and severe economic disparity. Uh, somehow this year it changed. Now it's an interstate conflict with regional consequences. And we all see what happens when countries engage in currency wars is uh, we end up with a real war. Um, The same went with their top five uh, global risk in terms of impact. Again, for the last five years, they've been worried about fiscal crises, asset price collapses, and major systemic financial failures. But this year, it's a water crisis. So they've taken their focus away from from the finance and the, looking at the world in a little bit different um, perspective. Well, looking at that chart, one thing I noticed is that it looked like up until 2011, 
climate change and disasters weren't even on the, the radar. And then in 2011, all of a sudden, we see they occupy, you know, two or three of the main five threats for for the last five years. Yeah, it's been off and on. Um, in fact, uh, it fell off completely in 2015. It's hmm. rated number five now of failure of climate change adaptation. What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to try to fix it anymore. We're just going to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, so here's a – oh, actually, it is a number two on their terms of likelihood, mm -hmm. uh, extreme weather events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number three is failure of national governance. Number four, state collapse or crisis. And the fifth one is high structural unemployment and underemployment. Mm -hmm. And the terms of impact, uh, of course, we had number one was water crisis. Number two is a rapid and massive spread of infectious diseases. That's the first time that that popped up. Uh, number three, weapons of mass destruction. Number four, interstate conflict with regional consequences. And the fifth one was failure of climate change adaptation. So is this group at Davos, are they uh, sponsored by the IMF or... One of these other, uh, do it's, we know? It's generally a group of uh, economics, uh, com uh, companies and banks. Uh, yeah, but who organizes it? Um, got me there. I didn't look into the... Oh, the because uh, a lot of different people get invited there every now and then, kind of like Bilderberg. I mean, not only right. do you have your scientists and your, econom your economics guys and your political guys, but, I mean, actors and writers get invited. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's just really odd people who are in a position to uh you know like bono mm -hmm. you know with uh greenhouse gases and carbon emissions so to... they they have influence with a particular demographic yeah oh okay he who shall not be named Iran. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no bono <laughs> that's right okay so do do they find that these these conferences have you um in your research did you find that that it does influence policy that all these people go back to wherever they go back to and and start implementing the ideas well that's uh that's the theory there's no way to confirm that so they hold this big conference without figuring out whether or not it's effective no i mean it's not broadcast mm. it's not something that we all can know what's discussed as what the plans are oh Okay. Or what are the marching orders that were given? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right then. So yeah, they just name the risks, but they don't say how they're, they're going to be resolved or what they're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. But it was a swell party. <laughs> well, Poroshenko was there, and he oh, left. Dear. He left early because <laughs> <laughs> his creditors were after him. Yeah. <laughs> He had important business to take care of. We found out that his he was, you know, his troops, his offensive wasn't going the way he he'd planned. Mm -hmm. Anything else on that, William? Well, we just gotta keep an eye on stuff because um, uh, commodities are down uh, forty eight percent lately. Uh, that includes energy, metal, copper, cotton, crude, rubber. Um, of course, you have the accumulation of debt of consumable and non-productive assets, and of course, uh, that fails to create any kind of future stream of revenue to repay any of these kind of debts. So it just keeps going up and up and up, and you have stagnant wages, so people aren't able to repay their growing debts. So 
there's just no way that the this can go out in any um, calm fashion. Okay, so I mean, so when you have so many basic commodities not being in demand, then that implies the the fact that there's no manufacturing demand for them. No product being produced because people don't have money to buy them. Hence the un- high, empl- high unemployment. And yeah, there's just no there's no easy way out of this without some grand reset or probably some major war. Mm. Well, it worked the last time <laughs> for a while. And uh, just some curious news also with Russia is that uh, Putin uh, made the uh, the head. Uh, let's see. He was a head of the central bank. Not, not, not. No. That. She was a head of monetary policy oh, okay. in the central bank, and uh, Putin was uh, really criticizing them for not moving fast enough when the ruble started to decline. And uh, so he, he doesn't get to give them orders. Interesting. No, no, yeah, he doesn't. No. Same as the Federal Reserve here. Ah. Um, so he uh, selected a, a new head uh, called. Dmitry Tulin, and uh, he's a veteran of the central bank, and uh, he was a deputy head when uh, just after the USSR fell, the Soviet Union, in 1991, and he had to deal with a very high inflation. And he's considered a maverick uh, who can't be pressured by the Kremlin, by the government, banks, or companies. So it's going to be something to keep an eye on as well see how he handles the monetary policy there in Russia. Well, if Putin appointed him, this could be a keep your enemies closer situation. Well, it was a it was a head the, the boss of the monetary uh policy that recommended him and Putin approved. Mm. Okay. I guess that's a wait and see. Yes. Going <laughs> on. All right. I just wanted to give a little update on one of the one of our recurring themes. The, the Jeffrey Epstein case scandal. Just as a, just a little refresher, he is a convicted human trafficker, pedophile billionaire. Um, in 2008, he it, it turned out that he had a, there were at least 35 female minors that he was accused of trafficking, um, basically pimping. Um, one, the youngest of which was 12 years old. And since then, since 2008, he, with the help of his big shot lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, have managed to settle thir- more than 30 lawsuits for, with these victims, you know, out of court. And since then, uh, the scandal has kind of er- um, erupted because of um, certain names being attached to it, including Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, and Alan Dershowitz himself. Well, more more art- more documents were were just published. Online, you can read the article. Uh, it was published on Gawker, uh, written by Nick Bryant. We're, we're carrying it on SOT2, so you can see it there. Nick Bryant, for those of you who don't know, is a, an investigative journalist, and he wrote uh, a, a giant, amazing book on the Franklin scandal, called The Franklin Scandal. So he's got a lot of background into and experience researching pedophile rings and sex scandals and you know just how dark and, and twisted things are beneath the surface of um, people in power. So he wrote this article giving the latest updates on what's going on with Epstein and Clinton. It turns out that on these, in these documents, there are the flight logs for Epstein's so-called sex jet 
or there are various names for it, but he had this private jet that he flew around, flew people around in. It was known that Clinton had flown in it several times, but now there's the actual logs, so you can see who the pilots had listed as being on the plane for any one flight. And so Clinton had um, was on the plane at the same time several times with uh, an acquaintance of Epstein's who is a softcore porn actress. He and um, he and Dershowitz, not together, but at separate times, I'm not sure if they were ever on the flight together, but he and Dershowitz both had um, are on the flight logs as being there with several of more of Epstein's acquaintances. Now, in, in Epstein's um, little black book, he has the, the names of numerous, like dozens and dozens of women listed under the heading of massage. And listed under the, under these are some of that, that we know of um, are were underage girls or um, people that that were involved in the previous lawsuits. And so on these on these flights, um, well, first of all, in, in addition to Der, to Dershowitz and uh, Clinton, there are several other people, like high level people, that appear on these flights with accompanying names of just like first first names of women or like an unidentified female or something like that. But um, former Treasury Secretary and Harvard President Larry Summers was on, Naomi Campbell, uh, Steven Pinker, he's a famous psychologist and writer, uh, famous atheist too. Um, but so Clinton made several trips with these people um, with, and, and he was on, on flights with, um, two women, and one of these women was basically um, a pimp for Epstein. She would, she's accused of um, finding these girls and um, basically recruiting them. What's the word they use for that? Jocelyn. Um... Yeah, uh, I can't remember her name. I've got it here somewhere. But anyways, so Clinton was on the flight with them, and Dershowitz. But when when it came out that he was implicated and named in this um in this in the statements from one of these new people that's come forward he of course denies everything and in one interview he gave he gave the impression that oh he only met Epstein at this one time because the Harvard president was you know there was um some big donation being being given to the university and so he he met Epstein because of this and then it turns out that he'd known Epstein for years before that and even in in different Interviews. I mean, Epstein is apparently the only person outside of Dershowitz's family that he sends his book manuscripts to. Um, he knew, he knew him like intimately. They were close friends for years before he he'd implied that they were actually together. So Gawker actually contacted him, and being the lawyer that he is, he had a perfect a perfect explanation for everything. Which, um, well, you know. <laughs> oh, he got all head up, and and yeah. and I. This this just cracked me up. He says, "I never would have been on a flight like that. I always travel with yep. my wife. Yep. Uh, we're you know we've been married for 35 years, and you know we're so devoted. Wherever I go to give a lecture or whatever, she goes with me, except that she was listed on these logs. Yeah. And he says, "Oh well, well I don't go everywhere with her. Every once in a while, I go everywhere. <laughs> it's like, oh, give it up. And so, so in the article, they've got the little interview that they or you know, questions that they put to Dershowitz." And uh, so here's his lawyerly speak 
So he was he originally said that to, you know he 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 only met Epstein because of this Harvard thing in 2003 but it turns out that now he acknowledges that he first met Epstein in 1997. So he says my first substantive contact with him was to fly with him to Les, to Les Wexner's house to attend dinner with Shimon Perez and John Glenn. As for who else was on these flights Dershowitz couldn't recall. Hazel, one of the girls just for name listed on the logs, I don't know. Claire, I have no idea. Tatiana I think that was a woman in her 20s who was Epstein's girlfriend, but I never flew with her. Yeah. And then the unidentified, the unidentified female, that could have been my mother. Dershowitz uh-huh. <laughs> traveled yeah. with his mother. Oh, that's a good one. like that. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, I'm, just, I'm watching this with some interest because uh, I don't like Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> well, there was another thing, uh, again, uh, on Twitter, and I have to grab the link, but uh, this was supposedly breaking news that a, uh, and I can't quite remember how the situation got up, it was just one of those um, sort of private YouTube channels, I think it's called Ring of Fire, so I should be able to find it, that a South Miami law firm uh, who knew the guy who was doing the uh, YouTube video is now suing Alan, uh, Alan Dershowitz for either slander or libel, and they're going to uh, also sue on behalf of some of the victims of this situation because when Epstein had made his plea bargain, the original one, none of the none of the victims involved were informed. Mm. So they're hoping to force out more documents by bringing this lawsuit. So that should be interesting. Yeah, the, the two women were uh, Ghislaine Maxwell mm-hmm. and... Um, Something Kellen. Kellen is her last name, and they were they were accused in court filings of acting as pimps for for Epstein, and they made at least eleven flights in two thousand two and two thousand three with Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sorry Billy, but and Alan, no, <laughs> going down. You said Naomi Campbell was on one of those yeah. flights. Wasn't she the world famous model? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Ghislaine Maxwell was involved in the modeling world. That's where mm-hmm. she found a lot of her uh, material, if you will. And like with the with the case, the original case, um, it looks like I, I can't remember if Dershowitz was involved in this part or not, or if this was the part that he denied being involved with and said he just kind of advised. But um, the, they had kind of, uh, how do they put it, almost like a gag order, like mm-hmm. they, they immunized anyone, any co-conspirators in this human trafficking thing. So mm-hmm. anyone that could have been involved is now immune from prosecution. And that was set up years before any other names could come yeah. out. And that's that's part of what this Miami law firm is, is so head mm-hmm. up about, because that's totally against the law. You shouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That is 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 a completely illegal agreement, and and it should be subject to to prosecution. Yeah, and actually, that was the thing that uh, that uh, Dershowitz claimed he wasn't involved with because he because it, it looks like he would have kind of been arguing for his own immunity if he was involved. And so again, he had a lawyerly lawyerly response to it, um, saying that well, obviously that wasn't me because I if I was involved. As they say, I am. I wouldn't be a co-conspirator. I would be like just a perpetrator, like that, like a John, basically. So <laughs> you think? So it's funny watching him him use his his uh, kind of his psychopathic view of how to work the law in order to 
to get out of things and argue his way out, which which you can see in any of the debates that he has or the speeches that he gives. It's just amazing the lengths that he will go to to justify uh, what's going on in Israel and what has been going on. Which maybe we can. Yeah, well, that you know that kind of reminded me of a video I was seeing the other day. Uh, it was of Norman Finkelstein giving a talk and recalling how Dershowitz had actually uh, stated on the Harvard um, University website that uh, Finkelstein's mother uh, was a Nazi collaborator, uh, which was a, a deeply insulting and egregious lie uh, designed entirely just to hurt Finkelstein, who's had a, a long-standing feud with Dershowitz on the subject of Israel. And, um, of course, Dershowitz has been trying to prevent uh, Finkelstein from getting tenure at uh, some universities. So basically, you know, Finkelstein's, both of his parents were uh, survivors of Auschwitz uh, concentration camp during World War II. And uh, and Dershowitz comes out with this uh, just a horrid statement uh, that's untrue, uh, stating that Finkelstein's mother was a Nazi collaborator. So uh, Finkelstein basically writes the president of Harvard and and uh, tries to address this with her and uh, and gets stonewalled, and um, it just speaks to how low uh, Dershowitz is is capable of going in order to hurt his enemies mm-hmm. and uh, put his position you know make his position uh, better. Yeah. I said I don't like the guy <laughs> for good reason. So yeah, that's why I'm watching this case with with open eyes. <laughs> but uh, Finkelstein actually made a statement recently on uh, the Charlie Hebdo thing. Now I'll get to his statements in a bit, but just as a as a kind of update on the whole Charlie Hebdo thing. Uh, last week we talked about um, cognitive biases and heuristics and how they're used and manipulated for propaganda purposes by people in the media and government. And one of the examples we gave was the the availability heuristic. So this is something that, like, if you hear an example of something that happened, people tend to take that example as representing a much larger sample, as if that's just the way things are. And so, of course, this can be easily manipulated by people in the media because they just they can present an isolated incident, and then it gets ingrained in, the, in people's minds to the point that they see it as much more statistically significant than it actually is. And so this is the case with pretty much every terrorist attack ever because terrorism isn't that big a deal when you look at it statistically. Um, so uh, apparently 76% of people, this was a... a Pew, uh, Pew poll, or however, they, uh, you know, a poll run by the Pew, whatever, research. yeah, Pew Research, whatever the name is. But 76% of people in the U.S. believe that tackling terrorism should be the nation's top priority this year. So three out of four people think that terrorism is the biggest issue, and of course, we know why they believe that's because of that's what all they hear. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. all they hear. But um, just to give a little bit of perspective, I've got a list of statistics here. You are I won't give the real numbers, I'll just round them a bit because otherwise, you know, number long numbers are a pain to say. But you are thirty five thousand times more likely to heart to die from heart disease than a terrorist attack. You're thirty four thousand more times likely to die from cancer. 
you are 23,500 times more likely to die from obesity. You're 6,000 times more likely to die from medical error, 5,000 times more likely to drink yourself to death, 2,000 times more likely to die in a car accident, 2,000 more times more likely to kill yourself, 450 times more likely to die from risky sexual behavior, 350 times more likely to die um, from falling while doing something idiotic, <laughs> um, 300 times more likely to die in a workplace-related accident. You are 100, 110 times more likely to die from contaminated food and nine times more likely to die by being killed by a law enforcement officer. Than being killed by a terrorist. Than being killed by a terrorist. Oh, my. So you are more likely to die from the cops killing you than you are from a terrorist. And 76% of Americans think terrorism is the number one top priority. Mm. Um, I mean, that just shows how good these people are at manipulating people and using these cognitive biases and heuristics in order to get what they want and do and fulfill a certain agenda. Mm. And obviously this anti-terrorism thing is an agenda because it is not a big deal when you look at it in the grand scheme of things. It is only a big deal because the events make the news and, the, and uh, they become big stories. But they're, they're made into big they're stories. They're made into big stories. Really, we should, you know, Americans should be focusing more on police brutality. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're more likely to die from that. They should be installing surveillance cameras in bathrooms everywhere to prevent people from, you know, slipping and dying in the tub. <laughs> I mean, that. I mean, I think that would be a good investment. There you go. <laughs> Round-the-clock bathroom surveillance. I mean, think of think about how many deaths you could prevent that way. It would just. It would make such a difference. Or you could ban bathing. <laughs> Either way, no, no slippery surfaces. <laughs> That would make as much about as much sense. Yeah. But so that's the propaganda, and it is obviously working. Things are going according to plan. We mentioned over the last couple of weeks the rise in anti-Muslim attacks in France. Um, so there's well, in January there was a 110% increase in anti-Muslim attacks um, incidents. So that would be threats, violence, um, compared to last year. Mm-hmm. So just in France, though. Um, well, first of all, but in France, just to give a little bit of the details, there were 116 um, noted confrontations in January, 28 attacks on places of worship, and 88 threats made to Muslim individuals or groups just in January. And France isn't the only country. It's also happening in the UK. Um, the sole UK charity monitor- monitoring anti-Muslim hate crimes said that it recorded a significant increase in incidents in schools in the wake of the killings in Paris, with both parents and teachers reporting, in, uh, reporting verbal and physical attacks against Muslim students. Um, these students are increasingly likely to be called uh, taunted as terrorists, pedophiles, or immigrants. There have been 112 reports of physical and verbal violence, the the graffiti graffiti saying Islam must die and featuring a nasty swastika um, was found last week. So this is you know it's just things are going according to plan mm-hmm. I guess. And then you add American sniper on top of it. They've mm-hmm. got America covered there. The the Facebook post somebody put up a collection of Facebook posts of how 
it's not just the uh, the anti-Muslim thing, but the idea that that people are actually motivated. They you know, want to go out and kill themselves and ragheads. You know, it's it's scary. Yeah, even the UN is holding a very historic uh, meeting at the moment. Um, <clears throat> even though it's only voluntary and only about half the members are there, but it's all for tackling anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism? Hmm. Anti-Semitism. <laughs> yeah, really? That's the big problem today. I see, yes. Such a big problem. <laughs> well, just some examples of what was going, what's been going on in the UK. Um, uh, so a different charity said that it had uh, strong anecdotal evidence of growing anti-Muslim prejudice, including the result of word association exercises in which children increasingly responded to the word Muslim with answers such as terrorist, pig, praying, and immigrant. So, I mean, this is the priming we were talking about mm -hmm. last week, and just the, the unconscious associations made between certain words that translate into certain behaviors. So people children are seeing are making the connection between muslim and terrorists pigs immigrants um a second anti-racism group um said that islamophobia has been on the rise for at least 4 years with children increasingly viewing britain's muslim as a homogenous group so all these people are are the same and this is the way we see them terrorists pigs immigrants no individuality, no differentiation between different subtypes, all one group and all evil. Um, a formal complaint about one of the incidents was, um, alleged that a te one of the teachers in these British schools had expressed his desire, or no, no, the, the, uh, yeah, the teacher had expressed his desire to purchase T-shirts with prophets of the with cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad as a way to quote challenge Muslims who are offended. Shortly after, the the pupil was confronted by a number of boys in the year above him and slapped. When the victim asked why he had been attacked, it is alleged the same boy slapped him twice more before calling him a Paki and a terrorist. Great. So this is why I think that all of the statements from people like Hollande or the leaders who say, oh yeah, and, and, and Islamophobia is a problem, we've, we've got to deal and work with it, is they're just hollow words because something far greater has to be done than making statements like that. These are it's been this has been going on for so long that these are entrenched, ingrained, subconscious um, beliefs that people have, and it can only be changed by a massive change in the worldview that is presented, and that won't happen as things are going right now. So, despite you know. Whenever you hear someone like, like Hollande say something like that and acknowledge the problem, and then you feel good about it, and okay, someone's doing something about it. That's not the way it is. He's not doing anything. He's not doing anything. No, That's just for media consumption, too. And even if it wasn't, even if he was genuinely sincere about it, it wouldn't make a difference because this issue is bigger than what some president thinks mm -hmm. or says. It is massive, and it is happening and progressing to a point where atrocities are going to happen. And I wrote about this in uh, a recent talk I wrote um, called Holocaust 2.0, coming soon. So you can read that on SOT, but um, it's just thoroughly depressing to see what's going on and disheartening and uh, doesn't leave much room for hope. Mm. But, um, but moving on to what Finkelstein 
had said. And I really, I, I th he's a clever guy. He's funny and says things. So I'm going to read this out. So first of all, he's talking about satire because the Charlie Hebdo cartoons were apparently satire, right? Nothing wrong with satire. Satire is when one directs it either at oneself, causes his or her people need to think twice about, um, like uh, the things that they're doing or saying that they need to think twice about, or directed at people who have power and privilege. But when somebody is down and out, desperate, destitute, when you mock them, when you mock a homeless person, that is not satire. That is, I give you the word, sadism. There's a very big difference between satire and sadism. Charlie Hebdo is sadism. It's not satire. So, um, two despairing and desperate young men act out their desire and desperation against this political pornography no different than their stormer, who in the midst of all this death and destruction decide it's somehow noble, noble to degrade, demean, humiliate, and insult the people. I'm sorry, maybe it is politically incorrect. I have no sympathy for the staff of Charlie Hebdo. Should they have been killed? Of course not. But of course, Stryker shouldn't have been hung. I don't hear from many people. I don't hear that from many people. Of course, Stryker, like we mentioned last week, was the, the owner of the Der Sturmer Nazi propaganda rag in the 30s, who was, um, who was hanged. Um, after being tried at the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, to incitement, for incitement to murder. Mm -hmm. So Finkelstein pointed out the contradictions in the Western world's perception of the freedom of the press by giving the example of the pornographic magazine Hustler, whose publisher, Larry Flint, was shot and left paralyzed in 1978 by a white supremacist serial killer for printing a cartoon depicting interracial sex. Finkelstein says, I don't remember anyone, I don't remember everyone celebrating We Are Larry Flint or We Are Hustler. He said, should he have been attacked? Of course not. But nobody suddenly turned this into a political principle of one side or the other. Uh, I just thought that was a, a really pithy and uh, just he, he gets gets across the point really well. Yeah, sure does. Mm -hmm. That this is, you know, it's not an issue of free speech. And to say, just we Charlie Hebdo, it's like. I mean, I, I I think I mentioned it last week when I wrote the article saying comparing that to saying I am Goebbels. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like I am Larry Flint. Well, no, you're not. Are you really? I mean, yeah. I'm saying I support sadism. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, that's so you know prediction. Things are just going to get worse. And uh, now. Because I'm now depressed. <laughs> Maybe you can. We, we've got uh, a different, a new thought editor joining us at the table right now, Adam. Hey guys. And uh, maybe you can explain to me why I'm depressed. <laughs> or <laughs> why too, are you depressed? Too much reality. Too well, I think it'll fit yeah. in. There's a drug for that, you know. There's a drug. All right. I read it on the internet. Bring it up. You read that on the internet. I don't trust you. <laughs> um. So. There was an article that I posted recently on SOT, um, Addiction Rooted More in Social Isolation Than Chemical Dependency. And I was thinking about, um, you know, in terms of what's going on in France uh, since the Charlie Hebdo uh, event, a lot of social isolation going on uh, in the uh, against Muslim population. And it's really interesting to kind of see the connections between social isolation and not just uh, the propensity for a chemical dependency and seeking um, some kind of comfort in that, but also uh, the effects on your health is really interesting as well. 
Um, so starting off with uh, some of the effects of social isolation, uh, I found an article that says loneliness is deadly. Social isolation kills more people than obesity. Mm-hmm. But still, terror should be, you know, the top priority of our government. Okay. Well, just hold on, Adam. I'm going to interrupt you because I think we've got a caller, um, and so they might be talking about something that we were just discussing. So before we get on to, with that, we have Juan from Chicago. Hi, Juan. What's up? You have something you want to ask us or talk about? Oh, just wait. I thought I pushed the button. I didn't. <laughs> Hi, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi, Juan. Uh, yeah, just about how you guys were talking recently uh, about terrorism and stuff in America. Uh, mm-hmm. I was thinking, uh, Allahu Akbar. <laughs> God is good. So, uh, what do you mean by that? Oh, he's gone. Well, yep. okay, okay. okay, that was a little comment. Know. All right, not All right. sure how to Thanks, take Juan. it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we just we won't read too much into that. Okay. Uh, so getting back to um, the loneliness issue, uh, I've got some stuff here. Um, so there was a bunch of research into loneliness and into social isolation, and there's a lot to conclude. Let's see, uh, that those without adequate social social interaction were twice as likely to die prematurely. They had an increased risk of, um, let's see, a death, premature death caused by heart disease. They had impaired immune function, uh, increased inflammation. Uh, I mean, the list went on and on. Your ability to think and to focus is reduced when you perceive yourself as being lonely. Uh, so that was just really interesting that, you know, it's it's not a chemical thing. Um, by any means uh, in terms of loneliness, um, but it still has this great effect on you. So when you look at Charlie Hebdo and you look at what's going on in France, uh, you can see what's going to happen is the Muslim Muslim population, because they're being ostracized for no reason at all, uh, their health is going to start to decline. At least mm-hmm. that's what I think is going to happen, and I don't want to happen, but... Mm-hmm. You already see that a little bit in France as uh, prescriptions for tranquilizers has has gone through the roof. Oh, yeah. Well, humans tend to forget that we are social animals. If you you look at mammals, um, just the amount of what I'd call affection and and touching and um, that, that goes on between mammals, you form a, a, a little tribe, like a little, a little group, a community, and you can, you know, just watch some nature documentaries to see how it actually happens. And then compare that with how humans live with the, the so-called nuclear family and where the parents are out during the day and you sit down to dinner. Maybe. 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 Probably Maybe not. in front of a TV, probably. And then, so what social interactions do you really have? Well, you're, you know, you go to work and you, you talk to some people there, maybe on your lunch breaks, but you're, you're in your cubicle doing whatever for however many hours a day. And then the rest of the time you're on your cell phone. And, you know, contrary to what you might think, being on your cell phone isn't social interaction. Um, our 
we, our bodies are designed and have the, the the memory of you know millions of years of spending time with actual other bodies, mm-hmm. looking into their eyes and hearing their voices and feeling their touch, and by looking at a little computer screen and tapping on it, that is just not the same thing. Your body doesn't register it as the same thing. Laughing uh, is not the same as hitting a like button. Right. Or typing, <laughs> typing LOL. <laughs> oh, winky face. Winky face, yeah. Mm. Um, so another interesting statistic uh, that came out uh, last year, uh, the study featured 1,500 face-to-face interviews and... Um, more than a quarter of the respondents, so one in four, said that they have no one with whom they can talk about uh, their personal problems or triumphs. Mm-hmm. And if family members are not counted, the number doubles to more than half of Americans have no one outside their immediate family with whom they can share confidences. So when you were talking about you know, most people's interactions with other people is just kind of chit-chatting about the weather, just shooting the shit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's not the kind of interaction that we need to be whole. And it bespeaks how how endangered people feel in a social situation that they can't mm-hmm. get past the weather. That that if they let any anything more personal out, then the, the vulnerability is just too scary. So they don't they just don't know what's what's going to be made of it. Yeah, and there was a uh, little uh, little farther on in the article. There's this uh, Rabbi Daniel Lapin. Uh, he laments that today's generation of young people is incapable of integrating their past and their future, living instinctively in an almost animal-like fashion only in the present. He notes that it is virtually impossible then to connect time and space in a way that enables them to build their present. Thus, they wander aimlessly without connections physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Which I thought was really interesting. Because in researching for this, you look at some of the effects of social uh, isolation. So be it you know for torture or in a prison or something like that, social isolation is used to uh, torment and terrorize these mm-hmm. people. And like break people down. And so we're seeing that in the larger population, um, partially due because uh, there's no need for, for interaction anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I can just go on Amazon and order the books I need is instead of going to the library, I can order groceries online and have it delivered. Mm-hmm. What were you saying about, um, about the tendencies of, of people in, in relationships these days and how they've changed over the years? Did do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, there, there was an interesting little article, uh, that said a third of Americans would give up sex for their cell phone. Mm-hmm. So, wow, I'm almost speechless at that <laughs> because I mean it was it's like the the comment on the article said you know I don't know if this is you know an addiction to the to the cell phone itself or if this bespeaks how few healthy relationships there are in which sex can be an an expression of that or a cell phone is the only safe way to have a relationship. In large quotes. <laughs> Text you, I love you, I miss you. Winky <laughs> face kisses. But also that, uh, you know, 50 years ago, if you were going on a date, you know, the guy would... Yeah, yeah. that was interesting, the way that courtship has changed. Um, instead of, you know, courting suitors at the house, 
where you would essentially be sitting in a parlor with the young lady and, um, you know, her family. It's now just like you go to a coffee shop just to meet up before you go back to someone's place and hook up. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I couldn't really find any hard statistics on it, but just with my interactions with people and the, the way that they uh, they speak about what they call dates is it's completely different than than what we see in you know for example films back in the 60s or the 50s it's a completely different thing and even if you are on a date you know chances are the phones are on the table and you're texting other people mm-hmm. so and that's why one third of Americans apparently would, would give up sex book for their cell phone because they don't have any real like meaningful relationships. Yeah. So when you retreat into your cell phone uh, for all of your interactions, you're not building any kind of real ability to connect with people or to have the social skills necessary um, to have a, a functional relationship, let, a, let alone a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to, um, half of Americans don't have somebody outside of their uh, outside of their family that they can talk to. I mean, if you don't ever have any interactions with people and they can't learn that they can trust you, then that's, I mean, of course this is the stuff we're going to see. Mm-hmm. All right. looks like we've got another caller. So we're going to take that. This is Phil from Minnesota. Hi, Hi. Phil. Welcome Hi, Phil. to the show. Uh, hello. Hi, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Hi, Phil. Uh, I guess I have a recommendation for you guys. Okay. Uh, I think we should like uh, take a plane and like fly into two fucking buildings. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Okay. So, so apparently we're getting trolled and pranked. So you know, sorry, Phil, but I cut you off there because you. Hey. All right. <laughs> we made enough of a splash. We're getting trolled. Okay. This All right. Is good. <laughs> well, maybe they just needed some more human interaction. There That's you go. What it is. Oh, yeah. No, just keep listening. We'll give it to you. <laughs> yeah, because what, 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 you know, what are those that re- the research on trolls? They you know to be have more psychopathic qualities than mm-hmm. the general population. So. Mm-hmm. And a higher boredom or lower boredom <laughs> threshold. Yeah. I think it is. Oh Lord. I want to go to something that that the rabbi had said about about um, young people living extinctively and in the present, and it struck me that that is a so much more easy situation to manage for, you know, the powers that be through the media. It's very easy mm-hmm. to spook a herd. Oh yeah! You know? As soon as you get them into the herd mentality, then mm-hmm. you know all the higher cognitive functions just go out the window. Right. Right. And if if you're focuses only on what is immediately in front of you, that's very easy to manage. You know, so that's yeah. that's a scary thought right there. Yeah, I thought it was a really eloquent point mm-hmm. and spoke on a lot of different levels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hooray for rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> so the the other thing, interesting thing, too, this is kind of tangential, but um, when you do this kind of social isolation, it, it struck me that this is what causes... If if the isolation is directed at members of a group, then that would cause that group to bind more tightly. And, um, you know, it's like the Irish being more Irish when they came to America than actually people in Ireland because they only had a limited number of people. So you tended to bind to these the folks that were like you, that you tended to exaggerate for your own 
confidence the the markers that made you part of that group and but that also would reinforce the the stereotypes that other groups held about you you know so it's it's a downward yeah. spiraling situation and um i mean that was the accusation against the jews for for centuries is that they were this clannish type group that didn't interact with the outside and so um people were free to form their stereotypes of them which reflected the view that you know they presented it was you know it's very confusing but you could see that possibly you know going the muslims going that way too it's like okay you know we we ha- we have to stick together because everyone's against us and mm-hmm. then that just reinforces the stereotype back and back and back yeah so i completely agree with that it's just going to uh, cause them to kind of retreat into their own culture, so to speak, which is then going to cause them more ostracization. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. and yet they're doing it inst- intuitively for their mm-hmm. mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to share that, that little bit, uh, just because I want to do my part to help humanity. <laughs> and if the only little bit that I can do is share the information that. Uh, you can stave off people seeking um, drugs uh, or other kind of things like like gambling and pornography. It helped prevent uh, prevent people from seeking um, those things as a kind of uh, tranquilizer or a way of making connections. Yeah. tenuous. Yeah, and all it takes just ask somebody to to go hang out and go bowling, mm-hmm. take a hike. I think in addition. I'm, I'm glad you said that. If you, you gave your 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 reason for wanting to do this, because in addition to social interaction, real social interaction, and bonding with others, one of the things that makes people um, mentally healthy, you know, gets rid of depression, is to have some purpose in your life, mm-hmm. and some greater purpose. Because most people don't have a greater purpose. Their their purpose is just to get paid to in order to survive. But in order but to have like a greater ideal purpose working towards and I think the highest of which is to just help other people. I uh, that and interacting with people, I mean you put both of those together and it's just mm-hmm. it's the the best thing possible. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well the I think that's the way you pointed that out was really interesting um, because in the in the article that was posted on SOT, there was the the rat experiments mm-hmm. where you, they had uh, rats put into to social or isolated cages and they had two water bottles. One had cocaine in it and one was just plain old water. And because they had nothing else to live for, they just went straight for the coke. Mm-hmm. And they kept going back until they died. But as soon as uh, they retried the experiment where it was a group of rats together and they actually had things to do. didn't want the the uh, water laced with cocaine because mm-hmm. it, it interrupted their ability to interact with their other, their fellow rats. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, I read this on the internet <laughs> and this is rats and not people, but I think, you know, I think we could take something away from that. Well, we as all mammals. So, you know, <laughs> So yeah, get some friends. <laughs> if you've already got friends, text them up, and then you know, Facebookings don't count. Yeah. Then uh, get them to you know come over to your house or something. Yeah. Do some karaoke. Mm-hmm. Te- text them up and yeah. say, Let, "Let's let's go do something real." Some dance yoki. Yeah. 
I mean, hey, we're living proof. <laughs> yeah, singing and dancing, a lot of playing, fun. Playing music together, it's it's fun. So do it. I feel a lot less lonely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think we're pretty much exhausted of topics for today. So, uh, if no one else has anything to add, doesn't look like we've got. Oh, you know. Let's stay on for a little, just a, a little longer, because it looks like we might have a, another call coming up. Uh, well, right. Can we take bets on if it's going to be another troll? <laughs> All right, I bet one slice of bacon and a fat bomb that it is. I'll raise you one fat bomb. <laughs> <laughs> well, until until we have confirmation of that, we'll. Uh, so um, we'll be on next week again. And oh yeah, one other thing we forgot to mention it last couple of weeks is that. On Sot Talk Radio, we have oh, yeah. a new show. New. The Health and Wellness Hour. Ba, ba, ba. Every Monday. Uh, same time as this show, so 2 p.m. Eastern. And it's great. So tune in. Um, everything about health from... Um, and they're discussing yeah. vaccines. They're discussing the best diet for for your metabolism. Um, if you can't be there, download it for sure. Uh, with with some very very qualified experts. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, check that out Monday, and of course tomorrow we've got behind the headlines, and we do have another call, and this is uh, Leslie from North Carolina. Oh. So uh, hi Leslie, how's it going? Hi guys, how's it going? Hi, hey everybody. Hello. Thanks thanks hey. for calling in. <laughs> uh, no worries. I just I was listening to your talks about isolation and the rat studies, and it reminded me of two interesting articles that I'd come across lately. Um, the first one was actually published in uh, the Washington Post. And the title of the article is Text Neck is Becoming an Academic, Epidemic and Could Wreck Your Spine. And they give an interesting little summary of uh, the human head weighs about a dozen pounds. But as your neck bends forward and down, the weight on your cervical spine begins to increase. At a 15-degree angle, this weight is about 27 pounds and so on and so forth. At 60 degrees, the weight of your head is about 60 pounds. So basically what they're saying is as we are all hunching over our our media devices that we are quote-unquote using to stay connected, we're actually putting this terrible pressure uh, along those cervical vertebrae in our spine. And over time, this poor posture can lead to uh, wear and tear degeneration and even surgery. They're seeing it um, more commonly in young people now, which is interesting. It's more motivation to get off your phone and get uh, off your device and get out and interact with other people. Um, let's see, one of the doctors in the study said that it is um, really profound in young people, and it's the equivalent of carrying an eight-year-old around your neck several hours a day. That's the average weight of a, an eight-year-old. And smartphone users tend to spend an average of two to four hours a day hunched over reading email texts or checking social media sites. So don't forget to look up and stretch your neck and look around and see where you are. That's actually um, really interesting um, because when you think about that, um, the posture that you assume in order to you know, look down at your phone, like you said, you, you're very hunched over. Uh, so you're going mm -hmm. to be uh, lurching your shoulders forward, which is going mm -hmm. to 
prevent you from breathing properly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as we know from vagal nerve stimulation, if you're not breathing, then you're causing all sorts of other problems. So Yeah, it's really hard to belly breathe if you just hunch over like you're looking at a phone. It's hard mm-hmm. to belly breathe when, you're, when your rib cage and your spine are rolled in like that. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The other article mm-hmm. um, that I was going to call and just throw out there was this interesting article I found in the New York Times. And it's from quite a while ago, but it discusses this phenomena that Japan as a country has seen more and more on the rise over the past almost 10 years. And it's it's these young males particularly was the target of the article. They're becoming complete shut-ins. Yeah, I think I, I think I read that. They yeah, just game all day. Yeah, it was published or... a while ago. Mm-hmm. No. But yeah, they... it's the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, the Japanese word for it. But, um, oh, no, I just, oh, hikikomori, hikikikomori, hikikomori, which translates <laughs> as withdrawal. And they are literally going into their rooms for upwards of six months at a time, and they don't come out of their rooms. Their mothers simply leave their food at the door. Um, and it's this pretty intense, um, I don't know if you'd call it a condition, I suppose. But um, it's become so widespread in Japan that a re- in response to that, an industry has actually sprung up, and they're literally support groups for parents, psychologi- uh, psychologists, um, who in- who interact with these, these shut-ins via Internet. And then they also have groups who literally come to your house, knock on your door, and then just sit there and talk to you. So this is this is how intense this this feeling of isolation. Yeah. Um, so so they have to sort of retrain them into socializing. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Wow. Yes. Yes. I mean, go figure exactly. that the Japanese birth rate is just plummeting through the floor. Nobody's talking right. to each other. So how can you how can you exactly. make them babies? <laughs> well, and the article goes on to talk about how it's affecting um, population growth, et cetera, mm-hmm. and. Um, just this this kind of they call them rental sisters, and there are these these women who are more patient and who are better i guess more nurturing, but they are called rental sisters as the out they are outreach counselors, and they go and talk to the hikikomori and try to coax them back out into the world and to interact again with society and that that really was reminiscent of that show the rat study that mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier where the rats in the pitiful cages, you know, of course got hooked on the drugs because they had no other interactions going. But even if the rat was in the healthy social environment and still presented with the opportunity to do the drugs, it chose not to. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So really all they need is a little more social interaction and then on their own they should, uh, you know, assuming everything uh is wired correctly, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. They they would choose the social interaction because it's a lot more fulfilling than interaction in a 3D computer screen. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the most interesting quotes in the article said that, that, referring to the young shut-in, he was saying he sat in his room all day where nothing was expected of him and he did nothing to show his value. And we can get into trouble there, of course, with the showing your value mm-hmm type thing but the the point was is that 
he was not required to interact with anyone. He just, there was no motivation. And I think um, earlier, I think Harrison was pointing out that at our core, uh, humans are social creatures. We need that interaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we lack the ability to interact socially, the you can have horrible results like becoming a troll <laughs> and, and calling into to radio shows and spewing nonsense. So I yeah. I recommend if you know if if your first resort is troll, then as a second resort, you know what you should do is you should start just texting. You know, get some friends and text with them because that's, you know, the next best, best thing. And then get some real friends and have some real social interactions. Mm-hmm. Get a good pair of dancing shoes. Thanks for all that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, all right. For, thanks calling. for calling, Leslie. Thank, Thank Leslie. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Time. All right. So, well, I, I owe somebody a piece of bacon and a fat bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, thanks for our callers. Thanks for... Thanks to the trolls for livening things up a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, guys. Yep. Yep. And uh, thanks to Carolyn, William, Ilan, and Adam for joining on the show today. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me, guys. And we will see you next week. So, yeah, have a good week and uh, keep your eyes on the signs. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.